Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Robert Breedlove, Bitcoiner, entrepreneur, and philosopher. We talk about philosophy, economics, and Bitcoin's intersection between the two. Robert also tells us about capital allocation, risk mitigation, and morality. Finally, we talked about price, logos, and civilization consequences of the money we have. Robert is a deep thinker. This is obvious whenever you hear him speak. His mind is on the metaphysical, but in a practical way. I enjoyed this conversation about the practical aspects of philosophy, which is largely in the realm of economics and money. If you like the abstract, this will be a treat. Enjoy. Robert Breedlove, how's everything going? Doing good, Jimmy. Wow, yeah. You're here in Austin for the Thank God for Bitcoin book launch. But yeah, it's good to see you. Like, you've been in Bali for the last three months? What's going on there? Yeah, I spent about three months in Bali. That was October through January. And we, I was just in the wake of COVID, just trying... I felt inspired to figure out my citizenship optionality, let's say. So I started traveling and exploring some different places but we've since left we've returned to the u.s Mm. and now i'm in austin for our book release party so (laughs) super pumped about that that's tonight and yeah i think we've written something pretty cool yeah yeah and this is something kind of up your alley and this is something that i've noticed about you in this space is that you do kind of like abstract thinking <laughs> and <laughs> philosophy and things of that nature. What's your background? How how'd you get get to this place where you're writing thought pieces about like um, you know how Bitcoin is the number zero and things like that? <laughs> I guess it's nature and nurture. Like I've always just naturally been the more philosophic of the group. Usually, mm-hmm. my friends have always kind of pointed that out, and then. I really doubled down on that natural curiosity, I think, with just reading a lot my whole life. Mm-hmm. And I think for, you know, it started, I started reading natural sciences mostly when I was young, started mm-hmm. really with astrophysics. And then when I got older, I got into economics. I went into the central banking rabbit hole actually before Bitcoin was mm-hmm. invented. So that left a mark on me. <laughs> it's just kind of feeling as if I had identified what was wrong with so many aspects of the world, kind Mm. of a a root problem Mm. as we go into in our book, but not having a solution for it really, Mm. because before Bitcoin, there was just really no hope, frankly. There Mm. were, you know, the gold bugs trying to rally political support to go back to a gold standard or something to that effect. Mm. It took me a while to really get Bitcoin. I didn't I was operating under the Facebook MySpace fallacy mm-hmm. that Bitcoin was kind of version one and something else would be the thing that really mattered in terms of cryptocurrency or crypto assets, but didn't really see the light, the proverbial light until 2017. Mm. And that's when everything crystallized for me. I was like, oh, wow, this is the answer to central banking. This is the mm-hmm. substrate on which we can actually build a true free market once mm. and for all. I mean, I, that's the great promise, at least, because, you know, everything else throughout history has just ended up corrupted. So mm. we needed corruption proof money, I think, to implement the principles of Austrian economists and laissez faire economists. Mm. Well, what was your view on money before Bitcoin that like when you actually heard about it, that it made sense to you or that like you finally saw the light or whatever? What was sort of holding you back from seeing the light, if that makes sense? 
I mentioned I fell down the central banking rabbit hole, mm-hmm. which was related to the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Mm. But what was the gap in my own worldview and knowledge, I think, was Austrian economics. I hadn't been into that very much. And mm. Safedean's book, I was fortunate to read the Bitcoin Standard, I think the month it was published. Mm. So I was fortunate to be thrown down that rabbit hole thanks to his book. Mm. And yeah, I mean, that's just what connected all the dots. It's like, okay, central banks monopolize the money. They use the money to control people. I didn't know the why of gold, I Mm. guess. I didn't know what made gold be selected as money on the free market. Mm. I think once you get that, Mm. kind of the, the properties of money, what makes gold gold, that's the best lens through which to interpret Bitcoin. Mm. and see it as superior to gold and and all other forms of money. Mm. Yeah, there's this money is very important to Mm. civilization and society. And there's almost like a disdain from the philosophical side Mm -hmm. as far as money goes. What's your view on that? How do you reconcile money to philosophy and how to live a good life and so on? Yeah, it's difficult to disentangle because... I mean, most every monetary system we've had historically has pretty much been monopolized and corrupted at some point. So it seems to me like that would be a large contributor to people's general perception of money Mm. and that maybe something like a necessary evil. But I guess the evil part of that necessary evil really comes from the fact that the money was corruptible at Mm. the end of the day. And maybe it's just that... I think people don't always cognitively maybe understand something, but you can tacitly understand it. Mm. So they could maybe just sense that there's something wrong with the money in general. And then maybe they just describe that to that feeling to money more generally, just like Mm. money is like, again, like a necessary evil, Mm. but it's the most important tool for humanity. Mm. I mean, the other analogy I like to use is it's something kind of like a social device that helps us coordinate ourselves mm. across time or allocate our time. Something like the calendar. Mm. Like we would be pretty lost without a calendar. We mm. couldn't really organize ourselves and mm. couldn't decide to meet at 530 <laughs> for a podcast. And money is, you know, something like that, but even more important in that it's helping us allocate our time and energy and, and store it across time. That narrative is just not widely held. You know, it's not... It's not it's ill understood that money is a technology. Even mm. people look at it, I think in the modern age, mostly as a government policy mm. of some kind. Mm. And maybe that's just a testament to how effective the propagandizing has been by central <laughs> banks. So you mentioned that you went down the central banking rabbit hole. What led you to go down that rabbit hole? And what were your conclusions from reading a book like The Creature from Jekyll Island? You know, what took me down there? I feel like I got really into watching certain documentaries that Mm. were maybe more a little more tinfoil hat Mm. talking about (laughs) you know this that and the other government conspiracy theory Mm -hmm. and then I started reading this weekly newsletter I don't even remember the name of it but it was by a a very libertarian economist type so he's just always railing against the Fed and, (laughs) and monetary policy and I think that book was referenced in there and when I read that, it just, what was the awakening? The awakening was really it's trade that makes us wealthy, mm. right? People don't understand that either. They think that maybe the government policy is somehow creating wealth in the world, but it's actually mm. just 
the market. The market is the economic network that's generating the wealth. Mm-hmm. Government really is just like the network security in a way. Mm-hmm. It's trying to preserve the integrity of the network so this thing can generate wealth and, mm-hmm. and generate tax revenue for them. And the fact that we inhibit the free market mechanisms that create all the wealth in the world mm-hmm. in the market for money mm-hmm. is what I came to see as a real problem. Mm-hmm. It's like we weren't letting, if we consider the market to be this kind of forum, as I've argued in some of my writing, for generating mm-hmm. pragmatic truth, right? Mm-hmm. It's generating useful prices or useful mm-hmm. innovations. Mm-hmm. This was an impedance to that. It mm-hmm. was preventing, it was distorting prices, it's suppressing innovation. Mm-hmm. And then the actual just story itself of how, you know, it was surreptitiously set up in this meeting of the mm-hmm. an island off the coast of Georgia and People will argue with me today about Jerome Powell, for instance, is a good guy. He doesn't have bad intentions to do this. I don't necessarily disagree. Maybe mm-hmm. Jerome Powell is trying to do his job. Mm-hmm. But the way the Federal Reserve was incepted, these guys knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, they knew they were setting up an institution to get a perpetual free lunch, more mm-hmm. or less. And that's just that's a problem. You know, that's, that's communism integrated at the heart of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to go back to something that you said, and this is something that I know you've said often, which is this idea of prices as truth. And I think you put it kind of as a very practical truth, right? Mm -hmm. Something that you can use that has utility in your everyday life, whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, some other truth like, you know, the atomic number of rhodium is this or something like Mm -hmm. that. That's not so practical, but... Prices really are. Can you explain that a little more? Yeah, I guess maybe a simple analogy is if you use a map, you're trying to go from location A to destination B. Mm. And if that map successfully gets you from A to B, is that because the map was useful or because the map was true? Mm. Like, was it an accurate portrayal of reality or was it just useful? Mm. So the, the point there is, and this is coming from like, the American pragmatist lens on truth. They mm. call it pragmatic truth mm. to distinguish it from the ineffable capital T, more mm-hmm. godlike truth, right? Mm-hmm. You can't really put a word to it necessarily. What we would contemplate is when we say true, we're thinking of an accurate portrayal of reality. Mm. So there's some, the deepest, most fundamental reality in the, the domain of the divine, we would say is ineffable. You can't mm. really talk about it, but we can talk about these pragmatic truths Mm -hmm. that accurately represent reality to us in a way that's useful. And the price is that in the marketplace, Mm -hmm. right? It's, we are, it's data compression. We are assimilating really all known market realities in terms of objective supplies of capital, the intersubjective demands for that capital on that capital. And it's all compressed down to a single number called the price. And we, there's a feedback loop between market participant and price. When the, we decide to buy or sell, we're affecting that price, and that price in turn is propagating information to all other market participants that are also in turn making decisions based on that price. So it's, it's the nerve signal to mm. coordinate the allocation of capital in a pattern that best satisfies the wants of market participants. Mm. So, but when you disturb the medium... Right, it's being communicated through money. It's mm. money denominated. Prices are money denominated. 
maybe to go one layer deeper on this, the price itself, everything's trading in the world. Everything trades at some ratio of everything else. Hmm. Again, in the interest of compressing that data, we express prices instead of saying like this chair costs 13 thumbtacks, you know, <laughs> we compress all of these exchange ratios hmm. into the market price. So hmm. we're, it's a social device or a tool for executing, calculating trade more quickly. Hmm. And in that way, so we could say the price is an exchange ratio expressed in money. Hmm. And that's where that word ratio, that is hmm. really interesting because that is, you know, in the biblical, the logos mm -hmm. comes from the word, the Greek word logos, which means word or ratio. Mm -hmm. So this act of comparing and contrasting and iterating, mm -hmm. this is something we also do with language. Mm -hmm. So most words are defined by other words. Mm -hmm. We can say that there are these really base level words where you may pick up a rock and say rock. Mm -hmm. But in most higher levels of abstraction, we're word meaning is relative, right? Mm -hmm. So we're comparing and contrasting words. That's an expression of the logos clearly, but I'm thinking that the same reason we learn the importance of that preserving free speech in the 20th century mm -hmm. to protect us from totalitarianism, mm -hmm. to protect us from demagoguery and ideologues. Like we also need that other half of the picture, which is unperturbed pricing in the market mm. such that capital can be allocated according to the wishes of market participants. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we create problems. Mm. And, you know, capital, the new way I'm thinking about this lately is just capital exists to mitigate risk. Mm. So we create things that we're going to need so we can deal with the future, basically. Mm. That's, you know, core theme in the Bible. Like, mm -hmm. you need to sacrifice today and prepare for tomorrow. Mm. And when you screw up the price as the central bank does by printing money mm. in a way that is not consistent with consumer demand patterns, it perturbs the price and then it perturbs the allocation of capital. So mm. they're actually creating more uncertainty in the world. Mm. And that's really bad. You know, civilization <laughs> is, we're trying to create this bubble of order and a sea of universal entropy. Mm. And, but when we screw up our ability to coordinate it's self-defeating almost mm. you know we we can't even act in concert well you pointed out this thing about logos being sort of a ratio mm -hmm. so what you're saying is prices are a ratio mm -hmm. and that when that that gets disturbed the truth is disturbed mm -hmm. and there are more lies in the marketplace mm -hmm. essentially making it harder to coordinate or making people less valuable or what's the actual evil there yeah, the evil. So a couple of ways I think about evil. One, this is from Milton, Paradise Lost. He says, mm -hmm. evil is the force that believes its knowledge is complete. Mm. So a legal monopoly like the central bank is essentially saying, by imposing this monopoly and interest rate and all these policy tools, mm. the implicit message there is we are smarter than the market. Mm. Right, it's like we don't need the collective intelligence of market participants to generate this pragmatic truth price signal that we'll all use and orient ourselves against. We're instead going to impose a price on the market. We're going to manage the economy. Right, mm -hmm. they're going to drive the. This is like the Newtonian clockwork universe where they think mm -hmm. they're going to pull over here, and get an impact, an effect here, but in reality, they're dealing with a complex system that mm -hmm. they can't control. 
So I guess that would be one aspect of the evil, is mm-hmm. it to actually have the hubris to think that you're smarter than the marketplace and you're going to control the market or manage the market. Mm-hmm. That's a big problem. And then another aspect that I've argued in some of my writing, you know, one that you helped me mm-hmm. review actually was Masters and Slaves of Money, that I make the argument that in the same way a stock certificate is title to capital, mm-hmm. Money is really just title to human time mm-hmm. because it is, it's again, a time allocation device. It's you're sacrificing your time to earn money mm-hmm. and then you're redeeming money for commensurate sacrifices from others. Mm-hmm. If there's one institution that can just create money out of thin air mm-hmm. that doesn't have to make any requisite sacrifices, it's basically stealing from all of the other network participants that are forced to use the money. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know... Theft of time, theft of life, theft of labor, theft of property, whichever way you want to call this, mm. that's the only thing fiat currency inflation is useful for. It's moving claims on assets from one set of hands to another arbitrarily. Mm. So in that way, I think we can call the central bank a system, an institutionalized system of time theft or mm. a system of slavery. Mm. And people take issue with this classification and that it's not necessarily physical bondage. People mm. aren't in chains, they aren't being beaten and all of this. But because it's more surreptitious and less visible, it's done at a much larger scale. <laughs> so as I quantify in that, that writing, it's a staggering number. It's, I, I think it was, if you tabulated all of the US M2 expansion from, I think it was from 1980 to 2020, mm. it was equivalent of running a slave force of 11.7 million people for 40 years straight. Like that's how many hours they stole. Mm. Just taking the average hourly rate and dividing it by USM2 expansion, I mean, mm. that's, that's a pretty good proxy for how much time <laughs> they're stealing from people directly. And mm. how's that not evil? Mm. Like I don't think there's any way we can justify, you know, compulsion or theft, especially at that scale. Mm. So there is an evil that gets created because they are able to steal from everybody else, that this ratio always comes out in their favor, basically, Mm -hmm. instead of sort of the natural ratio that should be in the market, Mm -hmm. which we call prices and so on. Describe how that relates to this idea of logos, because I like for me, when I hear the word logos, That's the word, right? Mm -hmm. That's the thing that existed before. The thing that brings things into being. It has some sort of like creative force Mm -hmm. as well. And what you're describing with this process seems like it's subverting that. It's trying to be logos, but it's not. Mm -hmm. But how is that concept related to this idea of a ratio? Yeah, so Jordan Peterson talks a lot about this too, that Mm -hmm. there is this undifferentiated nature that we just kind of, if you just think about like the original state of man, you're just Mm -hmm. dumped in the jungle somewhere. You got a few people with you. There's an undifferentiated reality, but once you start to label it, isolate parts of it, Mm. label it, develop a consensus around those labels such that you can communicate with one another. Like, you know, I can say Mm -hmm. tree and you understand what tree (laughs) means. We've now developed this, we have abstracted reality to a new layer. And you might say, what's the other example he gives? He talks about numbers where we could say, are numbers real? Mm. And they're not real in any physical sense so far as we know, but they're almost 
hyper real in the sense that you can use numbers to overlay on anything. You can mm-hmm. have three hats or three chairs or three tables or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it becomes one of these categorical tools that's universal and allows you to compare and contrast any number of items in the world, anything. Mm-hmm. And then, so then you've, you've developed this new language to take it into thought space. Mm-hmm. And once you get into th- the thought space, that too is composed of the logos, this mm-hmm. comparison, this ratio mm-hmm. of when we think about thinking, it's like you're generating these two possible courses of action, mm-hmm. different scenarios. You're populating them with avatars, perhaps yourself, mm-hmm. and then you're running it as a sim- little simulation. Mm-hmm. Well, what if I say this, and maybe they'll say this, and then I'll get this outcome. <laughs> or you may run a parallel or a few different parallel simulations and then decide which course of action to take. So there's this, I don't know, fundamental aspect of dealing with the world in space and time mm-hmm. in that when you try to move forward, when you take action, whatever course of action you're taking is at the necessary exclusion of every other possible course of action. Hmm. So the fact that we can reason through that before moving forward is what makes us unique, I think, Hmm. as animals, that we can spin up these simulations, reason about them, we can self-reflect before taking action. And that's, again, so far as we know, no other animal can do that. Hmm. So... Did that answer the question I made? Well, so you're describing something metaphysical, Mm -hmm. and it's not surprising since, you know, we're kind of talking about the realm of philosophy. So Logos is this sort of thing that is abstract, right? It very much lives in that metaphysical Mm -hmm. realm, like words or Mm -hmm. numbers and things of that nature. And I think the way you described it is, they're hyper real. They're more that real than the real things in, mm-hmm. in, in many ways. I'm sure there are people that would take issue with that statement, yeah, but I agree with you. They are, in a sense, like more real. They exist in a way that, like, my foot doesn't. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's more abstract and more general. If that's the essence of logos, right? Like this, this metaphysical realm that it's something that's more real than real. Are prices in that same? realm what is it (laughs) yeah so when we begin to isolate individual components of nature and then we're putting a label to them Mm. we've now developed a language Mm -hmm. so now not only can i think through these potential courses of action but we can collaborate on Mm. them Mm -hmm. and then you're seeing things that i'm not seeing so we're becoming more intelligent together Mm -hmm. about our potential courses of action and then i guess Prices become like almost another layer on top of that Mm. because once a market, once there are groups of people trading with Mm. these things that we've labeled and a market develops around them, Mm. all of a sudden the price contains even more information, even more salience than a word, Mm. right? It is the shelling. It's the most important data point in the marketplace, Mm -hmm. right? It's a composite of all the human action that's been taken related to that particular good or service or whatever it is up until that point. Mm. And it's an indication of the current circumstances in the world, Mm. right? It's like there's this much of this thing, Mm -hmm. but there's that much demand for it. Here's the price. So you know as a market actor with, you know, your skin in the game, so to speak, the, the best way to deal, it's giving you the purest information. Mm. Where there's no spin on a price if it's in a true free market, right? It's people mm. that bought or sold the thing knowing that they were at risk of loss. Mm. And the end of that 
process of inquiry is the price, mm. which again, back to the American pragmatist, that's how they define truth, the mm. end of inquiry. Mm. So there's this constant sequence of inquisition or inquiry about the value of anything, mm-hmm. right? As we all want different things to satisfy our, our wants, essentially. Mm. And the price ends up becoming this general consensus appraisement of the overall value of that item. Mm. So we can't quantify value per se, but I guess mm-hmm. we could say price is the pragmatic truth of value mm. in a way. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, there is, of course, this debate about if there's intrinsic value or if all value is subjective. But, you know, listening to you describe this sort of abstract way of looking at price, which is, you know, price is essentially metaphysical data that comes out of this substrate of human interaction of Mm -hmm. some kind. That in itself is... Suggests that perhaps it isn't intrinsic to anything like sort of physical. So what's your view on that? Yeah, this is a very important point I learned from Mises Mm. is that there are no goods. Mm. When I say goods, I mean in the sense that physical goods, Mm -hmm. no one attaches value to the physical qualities of a good. Mm. And we can also say a non-physical good is a service. Mm Mm-hmm. People attach value to the services anything renders them, Mm. whether that's an individual rendering them services or if that's a piece of land, like Mm -hmm. the land has crop yield, it's satisfying their hunger, or maybe it's satisfying their desire for leisure. To a pen, I don't value the pen because of its physical properties. Mm -hmm. I value it because it allows me to put information onto an information-bearing medium and share it with others. Mm. So... The encapsulation there would be all goods are services, effectively. <laughs> so what was the original question? Well, so it's on this metaphysical plane, yeah. right? Like, and, you know, subjective, object, uh, intrinsic, uh, intrinsic value, no, right? No. Like, it seems to point to subjective value. Yeah. That's the case. So all goods are services. Mm-hmm. We only care, we only attach value to services. And then... All value itself is subjective. It is Mm -hmm. the relevance of any service that can be rendered to you, either Mm -hmm. from a person or from a physical good, the relevance of that service to the end of your goal-directed action. So you're Mm -hmm. trying to go from A to B. Mm -hmm. If it accelerates you to B, it's valuable. Mm -hmm. If it impedes you from B, it's Mm value-destructive. And if it's irrelevant, then it's valueless, Mm -hmm. essentially. So... When people say intrinsic value, what I think they're trying to say is that it has its physicality gives it some value that is non-subjective. And that, to me, is a total fallacy. (laughs) Because, again, the physicality is never relevant. It's Mm. what services does that thing render to you. Mm. And then the services themselves, they're either relevant or irrelevant or blocking you Mm. in your progress from A to B. So you could never say... Like the closest thing you could maybe get is water and oxygen Mm -hmm. that has intrinsic value. Or some Mm -hmm. people would say life has intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. But intrinsic value just does not exist. It is by nature subjective. Yeah, I mean, value itself is a metaphysical concept. (laughs) So it seems very strange to marry that with something 
in the physical world. So, yeah. yeah. And anyone can want anything. Mm-hmm. So, and value is a product of wants. So you, mm-hmm. how could you ever say that this is like a fixed value? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it seems to... I always saw, thought of that as somebody saying, well, everyone should value this. Or yeah. it's like, it's almost like impositional in yeah. a way, which is not far from what central banks do, right? That's Imposing right. their will. Yeah. Um, so the concept itself seems kind of fiat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, that, that's the greatest scam in history is that political authority. And mm. I think that's the beauty of bitcoin is it just sort of exposes that mm. like there are no should like should value this should value that mm-hmm. you should make up your own mind i think mm-hmm. based on whatever your wants or goals and yeah. dream hopes and dreams might be which is where religion comes into play mm-hmm. because it points towards maybe the value hierarchies that have been useful across mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. like if people decide to lie and cheat and try to get ahead there mm-hmm. tends to be bad results after the fact i think you can you can derive a lot of useful you know pragmatically useful information from a moral standpoint from books like the bible and mm. and other religious text mm. well so going back to value as a metaphysical construct or a metaphysical thing and even interaction or Pretty much anything that gives anything meaning sort of lives in that realm of metaphysics. Mm. Why is it that so many people seem to sort of dismiss almost that entire world, right? Like there is a tendency for people to be materialists that Mm. think, you know, the material world is all there is. I would challenge them to like explain how we even communicate then. But, you know, there is this sense in which people dismiss this entire philosophical world that Mm -hmm. we've been talking about for like the last half hour yeah i guess we're still recovering from the newtonian model of the universe in some ways Mm. where we really think it's a clockwork atomic universe Mm. you know press this lever trace this arrow of causality and this happens on the other end but maybe that's still ingrained in us a bit it takes it seems like physics gets to places that the general population's mindset doesn't catch up to for a hundred plus years perhaps so einsteinian physics is only i guess 80 years old 70 or 80 years old so we're probably just still Mm kind of get to that and yeah there's i don't know it's hard to it's just such a persistent illusion i think even Mm -hmm. einstein said that that Mm -hmm. reality is such a persistent illusion Mm -hmm. it's it can fool you very easily. Like mm. it's very easy to think that material is all there is because we're interacting with the material universe all day, every day. Mm. Like for me, what helped me come to see the other side of it, again, thinkers like Jordan Peterson going mm-hmm. into mythology, mm-hmm. Austrian economics, like mm-hmm. the book Human Action, he goes into this whole domain of relevance and, mm. and subjectivity. Those books are not <laughs> widely <laughs> taught. I mean, you know, Jordan's first book is basically unheard of. Human action is popular in Austrian circles, but outside of that, no one's mm-hmm. heard of it. Mm-hmm. They're really difficult books to read. Mm-hmm. I think it's just kind of our blind spot as mm-hmm. Western materialists, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is just a product of the Enlightenment. We're just, we, you know, awakened to the limitations maybe that 
the church didn't have all the answers, let's say. Mm-hmm. So we veered really hard right, went to science. Mm-hmm. And then science took us to this Newtonian model of the universe. And that's just kind of where we still are. Even mm-hmm. though physics has moved past that, it seems like the general, our general language or general perception is still very mm-hmm. clockwork and regarding the universe as a machine, perhaps. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because like in the last 50 years or even like the last 100 years, it, it does seem like there is much less respect for something like philosophy, mm-hmm. that material stuff, materialism has more or less taken over. I wonder if that has something to do with fiat money, whether we have discounted this entire, what I think is a much larger area of metaphysics for sort of the physical. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that that seems to be the thing that people want to care about more than, Mm -hmm. you know, at least for me, and I think definitely for you, this is the much more interesting part of life. For sure. (laughs) I can't help but intuit this relationship with time preference as well mm-hmm. where and there's a number of factors that affect your time preference but money is a big one mm. if your money is losing value every year you're you're incentivized to be more short-term oriented or have mm-hmm. a higher time preference and when you have a higher time preference you're much more likely to engage in selfish or sinful behavior mm. and that's what all you know, gluttony greed sloth mm-hmm. wrath, lust, <laughs> pride envy whatever mm-hmm. the seven are they're all selfish behaviors, basically. Mm. You're trying to satisfy the present meat suit and mm-hmm. to hell with the consequences, so to speak. <laughs> mm. The inverse is also true. As you lower your time preference, you become more long-term oriented. You become mm. much more concerned about things well outside yourself, mm. you know, others, your community, humanity, mm-hmm. at the farthest reaches. And that inherently makes you less materialist, mm. I think. Because if you're really concerned about present self, you want to you know, dress mm-hmm. up, look good, mm-hmm. have a drink. Mm-hmm whatever immediate gratification you're seeking Mm. versus the more stoic low time preference approach you just don't care as much you know Mm. so i feel like that's maybe the connection to the money is through Mm. time preference Mm. that makes sense so lowering time preference makes you care more about the abstract in a sense yeah i see it as kind of like a sphere it's either all the focus is on you and your immediate mm-hmm. situation or the lower your time preference against the lar- larger your sphere of concern becomes. Mm. And as your sort of world of concern or sphere of concern grows, then more of the metaphysical kind of gets captured. In yeah, the you're seeing more of the big picture. You're more humble, I think, too, because you see mm. that you're a smaller piece of the... And by the way, when I say total picture, it's not like you ever see the total picture. We mm-hmm. just... We're trying to zoom out more and more and increase our comprehension. But yeah, and then, yeah, tying it back to something like math, mm-hmm. right? It's, it is hyper real in the sense that mm-hmm. we discovered black holes mm-hmm. via mathematics. We explained them mathematically before we ever observed them. Mm. So it, it does, when you really do move outside of the materialist world into mm-hmm. these first principle epistemological structures like math and praxeology you can start Mm. to see the much bigger picture Mm. and you see it in a way that observation can later confirm Mm. so i think bitcoin's kind of maybe there's a rough analogy there it was like 
you know, we explained black holes mathematically maybe mm -hmm. in the 80s, mm -hmm. and then it's only in the past decade we've observed stars going around a black hole. Mm -hmm. You can never observe the black hole, but you can see anecdotal evidence of it, its existence. Austrian economics has been talking about sound money for 200 years, <laughs> right? So it, it kind of explained Bitcoin before mm -hmm. we ever discovered Bitcoin, if you will, and now mm -hmm. we've actually we have observational evidence that sound money is the real deal. It's the fastest growing asset in human history. Yeah, and it actually exists in yeah. in some way. And that like still kind of blows my mind a little Same. bit that money itself is a concept that we have, period. Mm -hmm. And second that Bitcoin exists but in sort of a metaphysical sense because mm -hmm. it's there's no physical form of it. And yeah. so many people just get completely tripped up by that. Right. That's a big, <laughs> not to disparage the boomers here, but age is a mindset, so I'm not being an ageist. <laughs> there are young boomers and old millennials and all the things, but they really get hung up on that. The mm. lack of physicality. Mm. Like, you know, where's the Bitcoin? Mm. But the other way that maybe is helpful to think about it is I've, you know, I launched the show, the What Is Money shows. So I'm constantly thinking, what is money? What's a new way to describe it? I have like over 50 answers written down, and mm -hmm. I'll be publishing some of it soon. But it was a way for us to quantize our savings mm -hmm. so we could turn. We're all working to build up more capital in the world, which mm -hmm. is a buffer against entropy or uncertainty. But we needed a way to make that savings, to quantize it when I almost like digitize it before we had digital technology. Mm. And that's what money is intended to do. So mm. in getting the Bitcoin, it's like we have, we finally have the right tool for the job. Mm. Like we've been relying on gold kind of to store value across time. Then we needed to put dollars on top of gold mm -hmm. to make it communicable to, to quantize the gold effectively. But that introduced counterparty risk, mm -hmm. introduced the corruption of the bank, which is, repeatedly broken down throughout history mm. and now we have the thing that the money that properly quantizes it holds its value across time by mm. being a fixed supply and it's fully transactable and you don't need a counterparty to to custody it so mm. yeah just it's a major major breakthrough it's like yeah it keeps bitcoin itself is metaphysical mm -hmm. <laughs> And money and value are all metaphysical. Mm -hmm. And that mapping seems, to me at least, a lot closer. And it works better when it does that. If it has to be tied to something physical, that is actually a big impediment yeah, to agree. actually using it properly. Yeah. yeah, that was a problem with gold. Mm. Great for moving value across time, but not space. Mm. So as a globalizing society that was trading more and more frequently, mm. that was not going to work. So mm. we had to abstract it into paper. Mm. But clearly that doesn't work either. So. <laughs> <laughs> or abstracting it into you know, a ledger at the central bank or something. Abstracting like it up to a list keeper and then having to trust the list keeper. Mm. And then the list keeper becomes a gatekeeper effectively. Mm. And that gatekeeper tends to become corrupt. Mm. And that corruption ultimately changes what the meaning of yeah. the thing is supposed to be. And then it permeates back out into society. Mm. Like the book we read, Honest Money, Gary mm. North, it's like 
inflation's incentivizing producers to deceive their customers in the short run. Mm -hmm. and, it, and that's why I think we're at today. It's like, which is just so much short termism and so much BS in the world. Mm -hmm. Still maybe trying to find the proper scientific footing to put that in the money. But mm -hmm. I think intuitively and then intuitively it's there. And then anecdotally, you look at like WTF1971.com, mm -hmm. all this socioeconomic data going askew, mm -hmm. coincidentally in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of these indications that when we corrupt the money, which we could maybe say that's the base layer operating system of mm -hmm. humanity. Gold is the, the analog base layer. When you corrupt that, it's just, it's upstream from everything else and just pollutes mm. all these other market interactions. Yeah, so instead of truth, we get a lot more lies. Yeah. And that in turn causes war. Yeah, untruth. And it is, it's, it's rooted in a lie, right? Mm. This dollar is redeemable mm. for one ounce of gold, or whatever mm -hmm. it is. When in fact, maybe there was half that on reserve, mm -hmm. and then they'd produce more dollars without increasing their reserves. So it became, the money was, when it was fractional reserve, it was increasingly more of a lie. Mm. Until we get to fiat currency, which is just a pure, bold-faced lie. Mm. You know, just, this is legal tender. Use this because I said so. Mm. Which is the death of voluntarism, too. Mm. Because now you've moved into a full coercive environment, mm. which is like, use this money or else. Mm. So yeah, there's this, this trade-off between sincerity and corruption, I guess, when you start to violate the honesty. Mm-hmm. You violate the market process, which is the generator of these pragmatic truths. You get, it starts to generate its opposite. Mm. Prices are distorted. Innovation is suppressed. Mm. I mean, just look at your local DMV or, or mm -hmm. central bank. They just, they don't innovate. They have no incentive to. And then I think it's also tied into us as well. I think acting in a free market environment forces you to become virtuous in a way. Like mm. you have to learn the competencies that your customers demand of you. Mm. But when you're deprived of that connection, that feedback loop to the mm. customer as a monopolist, you become uh, unvirtuous or, mm. or wicked even. Mm. So. Yeah, that consumption of the lie <laughs> ultimately mm -hmm. changes you for the worse. Whereas consuming truth especially like harsh truth, mm -hmm. right? Like your product's just not good enough yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. or it doesn't work or it doesn't fill some need. That ultimately gets you to be better. Yeah. But consuming lies, it's like sugar. It tastes good, but yeah. it does some horrible things. Yeah, and you get further and further off track mm. until you inevitably correct. Mm. I think that's interesting too that it's not just enough to sacrifice mm. Like you're going to make sacrifices and you're going to miss, right? Mm -hmm. you're going to, your product's not going to be good enough or mm -hmm. your business strategy's not going to work out. And I think that's really interesting to you that, yeah, the truth hurts, but it needs to hurt. Mm. Otherwise, you can't correct course. Yeah. Like you need the pain mm -hmm. of honest effort and missing. And then it's like your plan mismatched reality. The pain is the information telling you you're off mm. and forcing you to adjust. Mm. But if, you, if we try to anesthetize ourselves from that pain with QE or, you know, alcohol or any of these other things, we're just delaying the inevitable course correction and making it more painful. Yeah, which is interesting because that's more or less what the Federal Reserve does, uh -huh. like on a constant basis, is yeah. 
they try to take the pain away. And, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily something that is done from a malicious like intent. They're doing it because they think it will take away pain. But that pain, as you're describing, is actually truth. And you're also not getting the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the more important thing yes. that people need to get. Yeah. Yeah. Which gets back to the whole intentionality. Mm. It's like, do modern central bankers actually know what they're doing creates wealth inequality? Mm. I mean, Jerome Powell will get on TV and tell you bold-faced. Mm. Monetary policy and wealth inequality are unrelated. And mm. it's like, I don't know if they actually believe that or not. But regardless, like even if it wasn't, there is something to be said. Maybe we'd even know this with raising kids. If we protected our kids from all the pain in the world all the time, mm. they would never grow, mm. right? They would never learn to be self-sufficient. So there's this kind of paternalizing thing mm. that nation states and central banks are so bent on doing, mm. I don't know, protecting us from whatever. But I'm, I don't know. I'm not convinced still. Mm. I think reading something like Jekyll Island, like the institution was set up with the intention of having free income forever for its shareholders. Mm. I don't know if Jerome Powell understands that today, mm-hmm. or if he's actually just drank the Kool-Aid. But yeah, we've got to let ourselves experience pain, otherwise we're never going to grow. Mm. And that's a philosophical truth that I feel like we don't really live today. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you do get slapped hard by reality once in a while. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. The people that I've observed that do really well, they really embrace that pain. Mm-hmm. Whereas the people that don't get anywhere, they don't embrace it at all. So mm-hmm. in a sense, that truth is necessary for human thriving. Yeah. But so many of us are just so used to kind of ignoring it or, as you described it, we're anesthetized against it. Yeah. That we wouldn't know truth even if it hit us in the face. Right, right, right. Yeah, and it dulls. What's that saying? If you stare long enough into the abyss, it stares back into you. <laughs> like, it dulls you. It changes you. And that's where I think we get into this, the degradation of moral character and mm. bureaucrats and central mm. bankers. It's like they just don't, they have no skin in the game at all. Mm. They're just withering away in the ivory tower, maybe. Mm. Mm. They're just very out of touch with reality. Mm. So. So how do you think Bitcoin starts changing a lot of this? Like, do people place more value on philosophy, ideas, things of that nature? Because it really does seem like the world is completely focused on material wealth, period. Mm -hmm. Right? It's okay. Like, the biggest gripes that anyone has is not being treated equally in some, like, about, you know, this or that. And it isn't necessarily about like where they're you know what truth they're living or anything like that it's just you know hey i want the same thing that this other person has or something to that Mm -hmm. effect yeah i guess we already touched on how bitcoin would just broaden your time horizon or lower your time preference just by being a money that does not depreciate over time Mm. right so if you know your Bitcoin's gonna be worth 2X in four years, which is conservative. You're, mm-hmm. You tend to spend and consume less and think about the longer term more. So it's an inducement into savings. 
but that has repercussions i think on our our own moral character mm. i also think and maybe this is a little perhaps a little more broad than bitcoin itself that this digital age we're going into it's really collapsed i guess there's two ways to look at this either collapse the cost of information distribution mm. or it's also reducing information asymmetries mm. and rent seeking would be largely based on these information asymmetries or, or access asymmetries. So, and the, the parallel here was when the Gutenberg printing press was invented. We, I think there were like 10 million books produced up until the point the printing press mm-hmm. was invented. Then there were like 10 million books produced in 10 years. So mm-hmm. the, the, the number of books just went absolutely parabolic. And with that came a deepening in the quality and variety of thinking in the world. Mm. So the church that had held a monopoly on knowledge, you know, books were created in the scriptorium. All of a sudden, books were being created all over the place, and they lost that monopoly. And that led to it falling off as the dominant institution in the world. So I think that digital tech is just enables a more fluid form for the exchange of ideas and critical mm. thought. Mm. And that's why I am extremely bearish on an institution like the central bank that really depends mm-hmm. on operating in the shadows. Mm. It, you know, until maybe 10 years ago, well, let's say pre everything pre Bitcoin to talk about fiat currency, to talk mm. about central banking, <laughs> this is all tinfoil hat stuff. Mm-hmm. No one took it really seriously. There was nothing to, to be done about it. How quickly has that changed? Mm. Everyone knows what fiat currency is now. Mm. So I think that there's a, that old saying, sunlight's the best disinfectant. You mm. know, I think we've just moved into a world where the light of inquiry, you know, again, if truth is the end of inquiry, we now have the light of inquiry being cast through all these windows we didn't have before. Smartphones, you know, mm. live streaming, just everyone's... It's like the global hive mind has gone frenetic. You know, we're mm-hmm. all connected now. Consciousness has become streamlined and interconnected in a way that it's never been before. And I just can't fathom how an institution that needs to hide in the shadows and deceive mm-hmm. and propagandize could continue to exist in that digital age. Mm. Did that answer the question? I'm I think it so. <laughs> <laughs> it was about you know, Bitcoin and truth and how that affects things. And I I think that's definitely one of those things that will change is central banks will certainly not be able to exist Mm -hmm. in the in sort of that shadows. And I think you're implying basically that a lot of these shadowy organizations that try to do things from behind the scenes will probably more or less go away. Yeah, Um, at uh, least radically change. And I get the the last piece of that would be Bitcoin imposing responsibility. Mm. Like it really forces you, you know, it gives you great power, you might Mm. say, Mm. to hold your own self-sovereign wealth, your own Mm. offshore bank. But with that power comes great responsibility. Mm. So I think by encouraging or inducing people to accept a level of responsibility that they hadn't previously over Mm. their own life and their own financial affairs, that could help rehabilitate the sickness we have in the world too. Mm. That's a big Peterson thing. He's like all about taking responsibility and yeah. There's a fear not just of responsibility, but of truth in general, mm. right? Because it does hurt, 
and、mm. people are not used to pain.、No. <laughs> they they don't want to get that. But you know, I, the one thing that Bitcoin does is it sort of imposes a truth upon the、mm-hmm. world that you can't really deny. And this is the thing that we tell people that aren't in Bitcoin: number go up. Look,、mm-hmm. <laughs> like.、Mm-hmm. You can't deny that this is actually there, and、yeah. you might not value it, but there's plenty of people that do, and this is information that you can't just ignore. Yeah, yeah. And in that sense, like it does feel like there is a resurgence of truth, right? Like、yeah. of a respect for truth that you, if you don't have, you get absolutely wrecked. Yes. So, how do you think that affects people? It's funny the things that are coming to mind right now. So one is that agreed Bitcoin is this inarguable truth. Effectively,、mm-hmm. it's the、mm-hmm. first global consensus、mm-hmm. mechanism we've ever had. To try and argue with what's on the Bitcoin blockchain is just so pointless.、Mm-hmm. Like even if you were right, it wouldn't matter because、mm-hmm. you know there's no coercing the blockchain into reflecting something else. So Bitcoin's indisputable truth. Pain, I think, is kind of the indisputable truth of existence,、mm-hmm. right? Like we, pain happens. It's gonna happen. <laughs> it's, it's not right now. Count your blessings, but it will happen at some point. And again, in that Talebian sense, pain is information.、Mm-hmm. So it lets you know when something's wrong, so you can course correct. And it quite literally pain drives evolution because it's changing you. It's causing you. Signaling to you to put yourself in a better formation、mm. to deal with reality. So in, I love that phrase. Information、mm-hmm. is actually what puts you in formation, <laughs> right? Okay, nice. And maybe that's what Bitcoin's doing. It's、mm. just giving us this honest base layer, this honest formation that's based on work.、Mm-hmm. Not you know you can't you can't really acquire Bitcoin in any way that's not. Work-related, unless you, I guess, five-dollar wrench attack someone, which、mm-hmm. is you know decreasingly feasible.、Mm-hmm. So it just really, it's causing us to put ourselves in information of being more productive. Like the only way we can earn our keep in the world is to serve our fellow man.、Mm-hmm. Getting us closer to the Mises vision of the free market, where you know the consumers truly are sovereign. There are no top-down authorities. It's whatever the configuration of demand is, as determined by consumers. That's the sovereign authority in the world,、mm-hmm. and that seems to be pretty close to God. Like、mm-hmm. if we're going to be living out, living in service to one another,、mm-hmm. that seems to me probably as close as we can get to kingdom of heaven on earth.、Mm-hmm. It's that we don't have a king, we don't have a president. We have consumer demand as sovereign. People want、mm-hmm. things solved. Entrepreneurs. Serve at their leisure,、mm-hmm. <laughs> and the net outcome of that is you know declining prices, more innovations, and you know in theory more virtuous people. I think that's what Bitcoin potentially can usher in, and that's why it's such a tremendous project to be a part of. All right, I should wrap it up here because we have a dinner to go to.、All、but、right. uh, but where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at breedlove22. B R E E D L O V E two two. I've got links to the What Is Money show there and my Medium page, and my DMs are open. All right. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. 
Robert can be found at at Breedlove22 on Twitter and Breedlove22.medium.com. Until next time, Fiat Belinda Est.